All right, today we are continuing in our series on John chapter 8. Um, if uh, just a little bit of background, in chapter 7, Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles up in Jerusalem, and he had been having a lot of dialogue back and forth with the, uh, the religious leaders, the Jews that were there. And um, I believe that in chapter 8, verses 31 to 47, today's passage, that's where we still find him. He is still in this conversation that is going on there between him and the Jews and the religious leaders. So let's read first verses 31 to 47, and then we'll come back around. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, um, I just want to go back to one verse before today's passage. Uh, At the end of the message from last time, when Jesus was teaching and preaching, it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many people, it says, believed in Jesus as a result of his teaching and what he was doing. But at the same time, in today's passage, Jesus says, he says to them, Now, he says to them, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, he directs his speech to all these people, the many people who it says had believed in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He says to the people who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What does that mean? That means... If there are true disciples, then there are also 
fake disciples. What I'm going to talk about today, this morning, is two things. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what true freedom looks like. Those two things. Being a disciple of Jesus and true freedom. Here, Jesus says to those who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So that means there are true disciples and there are fake disciples. That's the consequence of Jesus' words. We can't take anything apart from that except for that. You are truly my disciple. So you could be a disciple or you can truly be a disciple of Jesus. You can be a fake disciple or you can be a real disciple. Now, this is really, really important. I think it's especially important in America because in 2020, the Public Religion Research Institute, which is a nonpartisan religious think tank research institute, they did a survey in 2020, only three years ago, and in this survey, they asked people to identify their religious background. According to the survey, 70% of Americans identify as Christian. 70%. Seven out of 10 Americans say, I am a Christian. And to that, I say, no way. <laughs> there is absolutely no way that 70% of this country is Christian. If that were true, I believe in the bottom of my heart that this country would look very different. Our institutions would look different. Our government would look different. Our schools would look different. Our neighborhoods would look different. Our workplaces would look different if that were true. And I know you can say, well, Bible Belt high or average, lower, maybe somewhere else. I don't care. 70%? There's no way. There's no way. What that means is that there are a lot of people who say that they are a disciple of Jesus, but they're not a true disciple. They're a fake disciple. In fact, maybe even the majority of Christians, those who say that they're a Christian, fall into this category of fake disciple. The majority of people who say that they're a Christian may fall into this category. What does this look like? The late James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in, in Philadelphia, he describes these people this way. He says, that is, they are not genuinely born-again Christians, but neither are they hostile to Christianity. They believe the doctrines. It is just that they have never committed themselves to Jesus Christ and are not really his. They believe, but they are not disciples. They do not deny Christ, but neither do they follow him? And we see examples of this throughout the Bible. I mean, we've even seen it in John. Earlier in John chapter 2, there's another passage that says lots of people believed in Jesus when they saw the things he did in Jerusalem, up at the temple. Remember, he flipped the tables of the money changers, all that. It says lots of people believed in him, but it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of a man. What does that mean? It means Jesus looked at all these people who believed him and he didn't trust them. Because he knew for a lot of them that belief was not genuine. It was not real. When he fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, probably another 10,000 at least, women and children, with five loaves of bread and two fish. And all of these people wanted to make him king and believed in him. But then when he told them, if you truly want eternal life, you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you must drink his blood, many of them said this is a hard teaching. And they walked away. Many people who seemed like they wanted to follow Jesus, when it came down to it, 
They didn't really believe in him, and they walked away. I mean, you know, Judas, Judas was a disciple of Jesus for three and a half years from the beginning with the other disciples, saw all of Jesus' miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the raising of the dead, the healing of leprosy, the casting out of demons. Judas saw miracle after miracle after miracle, day after day after day, and at the end of the day, he betrayed Jesus. He looked like a genuine disciple, but at the end of the day, he wasn't. He was a fake disciple. This is, pro, this is ubiquitous. This is a problem that is everywhere, and Jesus addresses it here. Now, what, why is this the case? What are some reasons people may think that they are a disciple, a true disciple, when in fact they're a fake disciple? When we look here at the Jews that Jesus was speaking with, we see a couple of reasons. For them, here, they said, we are offspring of Abraham. Of course, we are children of God. We are descended from Abraham. So one thing that we can do, that these people who said that they were disciples, that were not truly disciples, they said that they were people of God, but they weren't, was they said, we are offspring of Abraham. We're descended from him. In other words, they based their standing with God upon the faith of others, upon the great faith of other people, like Abraham. Not just Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob. What the Jews were saying is, we're descended from the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. Of course, we have right standing with God. We are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How could we not be? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, he explains how this is possible. He wrote, but it is not as though the word of God had failed, has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What's Paul saying here? He's saying you are not a child of God simply because you are descended from Abraham or from the 12 tribes of Israel. That's not ultimately what makes you truly Israel. What makes you truly Israel? Being, being a, a believer in the promises of God, like in Isaac. Like Isaac, when God said, Abraham, I will give you a son in your old age, he gave him a son. Then he said one day to Abraham, go, sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. Abraham obediently went to Mount Moriah, was about to slay his son, and God told him to stop. It was a test. God saw that his heart put God before everything else. And according to the Bible, it says that God credited his faith to him as righteousness. Faith. It's about faith, ultimately. That is how you truly become a disciple of God. You are a child of God through faith, not through the great faith of other people, even if it's Abraham. Some of us, maybe in this room, maybe some of you, you base your relationship with God. You say, of course, I believe in Jesus. Of course, I'm a Christian. Why? Because my, my father was a godly person. Because my mother was always in the church serving. and She was a prayer warrior in the church. Or be, because I'm American. <laughs> I'm a Christian. Or because I was, I was raised in the church. Man, I went to youth group. I did all that stuff. I went to Awana. I did all those things. Of course, I'm a Christian. That's not what makes you a Christian. As I've said before, 
going into church guarantees that you're a Christian as much as going into a garage guarantees that you're a car. It's not what makes you a Christian. It's not what makes you a believer. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Friends, you cannot base your relationship with God upon the great faith of other people. You need to do what Abraham did. If your dad was godly, you need to be godly yourself and walk with God. If your mother was a prayer warrior, you need to have your own prayer relationship with God and learn how to speak with him and become a prayer warrior yourself. Were you raised up going to church? You need to become a part of the people of God, a part of the community of God, and not just an occupant in a building. You cannot base your faith upon the great faith of others. Similarly, you cannot base your faith upon the weak faith of others. You cannot compare yourself to the weak faith of others. Look at what, what's happening here. So they're talking about who their father is, right? And then all of a sudden, in verse 41, the Jews say to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Where's that coming from? Who's talking about sexual immorality? Oh, I see. That's a low blow. That's a jab at Jesus. Oh, we know who our father is, but how about you? Is Joseph your father? No, we heard otherwise. We heard Mary was pregnant when Joseph wasn't around, when Mary came back to him, and he was a nice guy, and he took her in, but we don't know who your daddy is. I know who my daddy is. We don't know who your daddy is. So what right do you have to talk to us about our religious standing? That's what we do sometimes as well. We base our faith, we could base it upon the great faith of others, or we compare ourselves to the weak faith of somebody else, which is what they thought of Jesus. That's a tempting thing to do too, isn't it? Isn't it tempting to think, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay with God. I'm okay as a person. Why? Because there are, quote unquote, worse people out there. There are worse people out there. You know, they're like serial killers, drug dealers, people who don't recycle, you know, just that terrible, terrible people out there in society. I'm not like them. I'm, I'm, I'm a nice person. I'm a nice guy. I do community service. I call my mom once a week. I'm not like them. It's easy to be able to think, to be tempted to think, I have good standing with God, with heaven. I know I'll get in there one day. Why? Because I'm not like these people who are worse than me. This is just like the Pharisee, the religious leader that Jesus gave this parable about in Luke 18, where the Pharisee was in the temple, he was praying, and he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I think he said that part maybe a little bit loud. Tax collectors are like, I'm right here, bro. <laughs> right? He's like, I'm not like this guy. Therefore, what? I have right standing with you. I'm not like him. What did Jesus say? What did the tax collector do? Jesus said the tax collector beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then what did he say? He said, who went home justified? The tax collector. The tax collector. Why? Because he did not base his spirituality on somebody else. 
He was not like the Pharisee who said, well, I must be okay because I'm better than him. The Pharisee said, the, the tax collector said, you know what, God, it's me and you. And when I stand before you, I know I am a sinner. I am in need of mercy, forgiveness, and grace. He beat his chest. And God said, he, Jesus said, he went home justified. Sometimes we do that. We base our relationship with God upon the weak, what looks like the weak faith of other people. Neither of those work. And when we do that, we are in danger of becoming a fake disciple ourselves without even knowing it. Friends, do not underestimate the temptation, the danger, the pitfall of becoming a fake disciple. You know, I'm, I'm 46 now. I know you can't believe it, but I'm 46. And I think about my life. I think about my past. And I think about the people who I used to walk with in Christian fellowship. The people that I did ministry with. The people who even brought me to church, who I did outreach with. All these different things. And, and, and I go back and I look over the lives of these people. And I, I can tell you that some of them no longer walk with Jesus. And that would have surprised the heck out of me back then. I never would have thunk it. I, I, you know, I don't know about you if you've lived long enough yet, but maybe for some of you, if you do some Facebook stalking, if you've been like a Christian for a while and you kind of go back to, oh, I wonder where my youth group, where do they end up now? My, my fellow youth group people or my fellow ministry, college ministry people, or I think you might be surprised at what you find by where some of those people are now in their relationship with God. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, the reality is that the love of many will grow cold. Many, not a few. The love of many, many people who profess to be Christian. Honestly, God forbid, but maybe many people in this room. At one point, we're standing here, we're worshiping God together, we're in community group together, we're doing stuff together. But how about 10 years from now, or even 30 years from now? Is your love in danger of growing cold? Jesus says the love of many will grow cold, whether it's because of persecution or maybe simply the love of the world that draws people away. So you don't want to be a fake disciple. You want to be a true disciple. How do you be a true disciple? Jesus says this. What does it mean? If you abide in my word... That's it. How do you be a true disciple and not a fake disciple? If you abide in my word. What does he mean by my word? My word is not a singular teaching. It's not one thing. When he says my word, it encapsulates the totality of Jesus' teaching. We know now that it encapsulates the totality of the word of God, the teaching of God, Old Testament, New Testament. It's everything that God has taught us, his word all of it, the whole. If we remain, if we abide in that, what does abide mean? We don't say abide nowadays, kind of old school. It means to remain. Like, hey, Noah, my son, remain here. We don't say ab abide here, boy, until I'm back. We don't use that. But abide just means remain. That's all it means. Remain. You are a true disciple if you remain in Jesus's word, in the teaching of God. This is a doctrine, if you want to use theological language, we call this the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. That means that if you are truly a Christian, 
you will remain in the teaching of God until the final day, until the day you die. You will persevere in your relationship with God. Now, for example, if, if you were to ask, or someone were to ask, is Ulysses a Christian? Is your pastor, is Ulysses a Christian? There, there are two, two ways that you decide how to answer that. One is this. You ask yourself, is there fruit in Ulysses' life? That's how we know if somebody is a Christian or not. Not just because they say, I am a Christian. Not even because of just what I say up here. But is there fruit in Ulysses' life? Jesus said, how do, you know a, how do you know a tree? By its fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. How do you know if somebody is a believer in Jesus? Do you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life? Do you see transformation? Do you see change? Albeit sometimes slow change, sometimes ups and downs, but is there change? Because where the Holy Spirit is, there is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, is there change? Hopefully you say yes. <laughs> Hopefully you say, yes, I see some fruit in Ulysses. You know, so I, th- I, I have confidence that he's a Christian. Hopefully, that's, that's one, way, one way to answer that. The second way to answer that when somebody says, is Ulysses a Christian? The second way is to say, we'll see. We'll see. What do you mean by that? We'll see if Ulysses perseveres until the end. If he endures until the end. If in 20 years from now, Ulysses runs off with another woman, if he starts living a licentious life, if he starts gambling all his money away, abusing his, his kids, being mean person, and he stops recycling, and he does all those things, you look at Ulysses, then maybe your answer is, you know what? I don't think so. He did not endure. He looked like he was a Christian. He was even a pastor, but maybe he was a fake Christian. He did not endure. And, and friends, there are, I've heard of stories of pastors uh, coming, uh, believing in Jesus, receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior at like revival meetings. It happens. It happens. The second way we know, first is, is there fruit in the person's life? And second is, does he endure? Does he make it to the end? You see, now, this doesn't mean we are to be nervous and anxious. Like, oh my gosh, am I a Christian? Am I not? Your confidence as a believer should come from whether or not there's fruit in your life. And again, sometimes there's ups and downs. Sometimes that fruit is slow, but your confidence comes from your willingness to seek Jesus. And if that is in your life, even at times if it's a struggle, if it's a fight, if it's difficult, even the desire to follow Jesus, even the, the, the fight, the desire to get back up after you've fallen down is a sign of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we don't need to be nervous about that. But Paul says also, don't just sit on your laurels. This is a race we need to finish. And secondly, do we persevere until the end? Do we remain in Jesus's word. What does it mean to remain in his word, to remain in the totality of his teaching? It means so much, and there's no way I can describe it all, but Jesus already given us a few things. He said, he's the light. Jesus is the light. So to remain in Jesus's teaching means that you let Jesus's light guide you in life, that he is the one who, who helps you to know where to go, what to do. He gives you wisdom. He brings light into the darkness for you. Is he your light? It means to embrace Jesus as the truth. That his word defines how you understand the totality of the universe that we live in. 
We define it according to the truth of the word of God. What he calls evil, we call evil. What he calls good, we call good. We remain in his truth. It means he says that he's the bread of life. It means that to remain in his word means that we know that we get our nourishment from Jesus. He is the one who satisfies my soul. Not money, not worldly success, not sex, not relationships, but Jesus himself is the one who nourishes me. To remain in him in his teaching means I know that he is the living water and he quenches the deepest thirst within me. It means in everything in our life, we remain in the worldview, in the orbit with Jesus as our son and we orbit around him in our life. We remain in his teaching. Look, like our church, we have a good number of people here I know one reason a lot of people are here, a lot of you may be here, is community. Because we have awesome people in our church, and that's great. But even community needs to be in Jesus' teaching. It needs to be in Jesus' teaching. How do we do community? How do we relate to each other? Do we speak the truth in love? Are we patient with each other? When we get hurt, do we forgive or do we run away instead? Or do we forgive as Christ has forgiven us? Do we bear each other's burdens and genuinely care and listen to each other? If we don't do these things and we're just a social group, then we're really no different from any other social organization in this world. Even our relationships in our community needs to, be, needs to remain in Jesus' word. That's what it means to remain, to abide in Christ. So, to be a true disciple means you are remaining in the teaching of God in how you live. Now, freedom, the second point here. There are two types of freedom as well. They said here in verse 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So here we have two different points of view. The Jews here are saying, we're free. What are you talking about slavery? We're free. We have freedom. And Jesus says, no, you don't. Actually, you are in slavery. So with freedom as well, there is true freedom and there is also fake freedom. Both of these exist. What is fake freedom? Fake freedom is when you think you're free, but you're really a slave. The religious leaders, the Jews here, they thought they were free, but Jesus tells them, no, they are not. Because freedom, look here in verse 34, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What does he mean by that? See, freedom is not a political system in your country. Freedom is not just about social freedoms that we have or freedom of speech or freedom of religion even. That's not what real freedom is. Freedom is about freedom from slavery to sin. So if you may live in a very free country, you may live in a, in a, in a democracy, you may have all of these th- different freedoms in your life. You could choose the career that you want to. You could choose who you want to marry, all these different things. But if you are still practicing sin, you are in slavery to sin. You are actually in slavery. See, it's, it's not about what we see around us is about what's going on in your heart. It's about what's going on in your heart. That's what Jesus is saying to them. They thought they were free, but they weren't because there were sins in their life 
that they were beholden to. You know, I, when I was a, a young man, fresh out of college, um, I was doing, uh, I lived with these four or five other guys. And I, I remember I, you know, I was a Christian then. I was growing in my faith. I was getting really excited. You know, I was growing in faith and I was doing college ministry and all that stuff. And one day I was, I was reading Genesis, how it talked about the Garden of Eden, about how Adam and Eve, before they had sinned, that they would be naked and they were unashamed because sin had not entered the world yet. And I said to myself, you know what? I don't want to be a slave to sin. I don't want to let that rule over me. I can be naked and unashamed. So I started walking around the house naked, actually, for a while, a little period of time. I know, this is weird, right? I was like, I don't need to be ashamed of sin. But I had four other guy roommates, right? But they're all Christian. And I was, they were like, what are you doing, man? I was like, I don't need to be ashamed of my sin, right? I also worked out more back then, so I probably felt better about things. But, so I just walk around, walk around naked, a little, come out of my room. And this was, this was not great for my roommates, right? They, they didn't really appreciate this, especially during dinner time when they would eat at the table. And I'd just be walking around. They're like, oh, gosh, this is like, you know, like, this is dumb. Yeah, this is bad theology. Bad theology back then. But, you know, I was like, hey, I'm free. This is freedom. Freedom in Christ. I don't need to be. But, you know, what was freedom, I, what I said was freedom was actually really inconsiderate. It was really inconsiderate. I wasn't thinking about them. I wasn't thinking about when they're eating and how they would feel and all these kind of things. And you know, it was a, what was I? I was in slavery to my selfishness, to being an inconsiderate person. I wasn't thinking about them. That's the type of slavery. I was slavery to doing what I wanted to do without concern for them as a dumb 22, 21 year old guy, really dumb, okay? Really, really dumb. In the name of freedom, really it's a type of slavery. I, I remember, same years, <laughs> early 20s, you know, we, we did this thing in Christian life called quiet time. You know quiet time? If you're not a Christian, you might go, quiet time? What's that? Is that like time out? Like you're bad or something? You got to go and sit in the corner? Quiet time, you know, what quiet time is, is basically a time where you set aside, usually at the same time every day, where you go and you read the Bible, and you pray, and you spend time with God, you just focus on Him. And, and you, you kind of do it at the same time every day, a set amount of time. And I remember um, one day, you know, I was living in my mom's house back then, and the upstairs was empty. And I would grab a guitar. I just learned how to play guitar back then. And I was like, hey, I'm going to go spend time with God. just outside of my quiet time. And I remember I was there, and I was, I was playing the, the guitar, and I was singing worship songs to God, and I was praying. Oh my gosh, I had such a good time. I met with God. It was so powerful. I spent probably like two hours up there. Two hours. And it was enjoyable. It was really, really enjoyable. And I was like, you know, sometimes when I do my quiet time, it's like, I feel like a drag. Like I kind of just got to go do it and stuff like that, you know. But man, this was like heaven. This was like heaven. And I said to myself, you know, this is how it should be. Not because I need to kind of force myself to go do my quiet time. Or I, I want to I come to God with a joyful heart to come to him when I want to come to him. So I started doing that. You know, next day I probably went up again, spent more time with God and stuff. But you know, you know what happened? You know what happened, right? Eventually that kind of faded, kind of passed. But that thought, you know what? I want to be free. I want to be free to just come to God whenever I want to. I want this to be real and genuine. I don't want to have to be restricted to this set time every day. And what happened is this freedom of being with God ended up being two hours, then an hour and a half, then an hour. Oh, I'm kind of busy today, maybe 20 minutes. And then eventually, 
it became very little. And then, without my quiet time there, I stopped spending time with God. In the name of freedom, actually what happened was, I became a slave to laziness. In the name of freedom. I said, I'm free. I'm free. And I, I, just, I justified that. But eventually I became a slave to laziness because of that. Because Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need discipline in this life. Freedom sometimes is not really what we think it is. We do this in so many different ways. We say, hey, you know what? I'm just being real. I'm just saying what's on my heart. I'm just being genuine. That's freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to be myself. But no, if what you're saying is unthoughtful, is hurtful to others, doesn't take their feelings into consideration, you're actually being a slave to selfishness. You're thinking about yourself and not others. Maybe you say, you know what? I want freedom from these difficult people in my life. Man, they're just making my life hard. They don't get me. You know, like they, they just, I just, you know, I'm going to go find some new friends. In the name of freedom, you do that. Maybe you do that over and over again. In reality, maybe you're a slave to your own character flaws. And you don't want to change. And you're in slavery to that. And you drive people away over and over again. In the name of freedom, I want to be free from these people. It's you. You're enslaved to your insecurity and to your own character flaws. Maybe we say financial freedom. I want financial freedom. I just want to be able to earn enough money, to be, the house, the car, the vacations, the, the, the clothing, and all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the name of freedom, are you actually becoming a slave to materialism? To materialism. You know, in, in our church, I teach that, you know, People say, oh, oh, you, you know, do, we, do you tithe at this church? And I say, well, yes and no. Tithing is an Old Testament law thing, giving 10%. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the law has been fulfilled in Christ. So you don't need to hold that like a law. But I do. I do. I give 10% of my salary. Why? Because I know, I know what happens. If in the name of freedom... I say, I should be free to be a joyful giver whenever I want to be. I know when next month is tight, I can't do 10%, 5% this month. Things are tight. Then that becomes three. Then it becomes one. Then it becomes whenever I feel like I can. And before you know it, I fall into the trap of slavery to money and materialism without having realized it in the name of freedom. In the name of freedom. Sometimes we think something is free. It's true freedom. It's not. Sexual freedom. I should be able to sleep with who I want to, when I want to. In fact, the other side of sexual freedom oftentimes is slavery to lust. Addiction to lust, pornography, things like that. That's really there underneath the surface. The, the Jews here were trying to kill Jesus. Jesus said, why are you trying to kill me? You know, like, I think if any of you saw Jesus on the street, you probably wouldn't try to kill him. <laughs> I don't think you would. But when we, in the name of of freedom, say, Jesus, you know, I, want, I don't want you in this part of my life. I just want to kind of do my own thing here. For all intents and purposes, we're saying, Jesus, you're dead to me in this part of my life in the name of freedom. Is there, this is so tricky and sneaky, brothers and sisters, because in the name of freedom, underneath that, the mask looks like freedom. You take it off underneath, it's slavery. It's the desires of the flesh self-justification, the love of this world. But we put the mask on and we say, it's just me being free. 
That's what the Jews thought here. Jesus said, no, that's not freedom. If you practice sin in your life, there's something you're enslaved to. You're not free just because you call yourself a Christian. You're free when you can live differently. And, and this is what freedom is here, Jesus. When Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. What does true freedom look like? True freedom is the ability for us to fully be who God made us to be. That's what freedom is. Being able to be the person that God has made you to be. That is true freedom. And that freedom is so powerful, so powerful that Paul in 1 Corinthians, he said, are you a slave? Don't be worried about it. If you can get your freedom, great. If not, it's okay. Why? Because if you were called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a slave, you're still a freedman in the Lord. You see? Even your external circumstances, if they're terrible, if you're a slave, if you're a Christian, genuinely, you have incredible freedom because that's who you truly are in Christ. You have freedom to walk with God, even in the most difficult circumstances. Even in prison, if you're in prison for your faith, if you're being persecuted, you can walk with God. Christians have this incredible power, incredible freedom that can be taken away by no one, no dictator, no autocrat, no persecution can take away your freedom if you're truly in Christ. Because you can walk with God. You can choose to respond in a godly way in any situation that you're in through the power of the Holy Spirit. What is true freedom? John Piper, he put it this way. He said, you are fully free, completely free, free indeed, when you have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to do what will make you happy in a thousand years. Or we could say you are fully free when you have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity to do what will leave you with no regrets forever. What is he saying? What is true freedom? Living in a way where in a thousand years from now, long after you're dead, when you're standing before God, you will be able to see, look back upon the whole history of your life. Freedom means doing at that moment what now I am happy, makes me happy. What I realized now was the right thing. What leaves me with no regrets now. Not, not back then, not in this present life. True freedom means standing before God in that day and being like, Lord, I am so happy that I resisted slavery and I chose true freedom in you. That's true freedom. Not the now, but in eternity. In eternity, if we can see and adopt that perspective of a thousand years from now, how would we have wished we lived when we walk that way, that is true freedom. Friends, Jesus says here, and I close with this. I invite the worship team up at this time. There's an interesting change here that is confusing. In verse 35, he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, it's confusing here because, wait, I thought being a slave was a bad thing, being a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Isn't that a good thing? If you're a slave, you want to get out of the house? Why does it suddenly sound like it's a good thing to be a slave, well, or at least in that position, to get out? Because Jesus is changing things a little bit here. He's no longer talking about, this, about the, the status of a slave. Now he's talking about authority here, authority. He's saying the slave has no true authority in the house, in the house that he's serving in. He could be sold. He could be, he, he could, he could be kicked out. 
Who has true authority in the house? Only the son. The son has authority in the house. And Jesus says, I am the son. I am the son of God. And if I set you free, you are free indeed. Only Jesus has the power to set you free from the terrible master of sin and the terrible master of Satan. He has the power only through him. Through faith in Jesus, true faith, true faith in Jesus, believing that he died upon the cross for your sins, that he was raised on the third day so that you could live in newness of life, and that through faith in Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit power to be able to walk in alignment with the will of God. Only Jesus can give you that freedom.